Well, and before we really get going here in the text, there are just a couple of notes that I want to make sure that you all are aware of. The first of those is that uh, Josh Garrett was engaged to be married last weekend. Josh, are you back in this service? I know you were in first service, but no, he's not in here. So if you see Josh and his new fiance Elise here um, this morning, make sure you greet them and say congratulations. I know that's always an exciting thing when a younger member of our church who really has grown up in this church and come to maturity in their faith in Christ goes off to take that next step in life. That's really a celebration for all of us and would encourage you to join in with the Garrett family as they rejoice in what God is doing in bringing those two lives together and starting a, a new family unit here in our midst. We're looking forward to seeing what God will do there, but do extend your congratulations to them. Uh, the other thing that I would like to let you know about is that this coming Friday night is the final newcomer night for this year. And if you've been coming to New Community Church for whatever period of time, perhaps it's a couple of weeks, couple months, or even a couple years, and I've not had the opportunity yet to get to know you, just, just know that we would truly love to have you to our house for dinner on Friday night. My wife, Michelle, and I, along with some other leaders in the church, would just really enjoy getting the opportunity to, to get to know who you are, more of a casual environment. We've got a little bit more time than we do here on a Sunday morning, and just know that you would be very warmly welcomed there. There should be a link on the back of your bulletin to sign up for that if you've got any interest in attending. We'd love to have you. Well, do take your Bibles and turn in them together with me to John chapter 15 as we pick up where we left off the last time that we were together here in verse 7 today. We're going to begin our study again in verse 7. And as you turn there, I will tell you that like many of you this past week, I had the opportunity to place an online order. And in my house, whenever a package shows up on the doorstep from Amazon or from wherever, it's like a little mini Christmas celebration where the kiddos want to know, Dad, what is it and who is it for? And, and the package showed up and we brought it into the house and I proceeded to open it only to realize that the product ordered required some assembly. And so not to be outdone, I dutifully pulled out the accompanying instruction sheet that had been shipped with the product and found to my tremendous disgust that there were no words on the page at all. Only a set of extraordinarily unhelpful pictures. Now, I'm sure that the product designer meant well but when he did not send step-by-step -step instructions, you see, he, he proceeded to introduce into my existence just a little bit of an existential crisis because I was left to try to decipher how to put this thing together with nothing more than his photograph and my own wits. And I ended up walking away from the experience feeling like I had just failed an IQ test that I never even signed up for. As we come back into this text here together this morning, You'll remember that last week, Jesus gave us a powerful picture of what a fruitful life is supposed to look like. Ten times in these first ten verses, he says, abide in me. And perhaps you, like me, walked away from that picture, walked away from that image, begging for more detailed instructions. How? am I supposed to abide in you? What exactly does that mean and how am I supposed to do it? 
I mean, clearly, from the actual image itself, we gathered last week together that doing this is very important, but I promised you that here this week we would get down into the instructions for how to abide. Because, friends, without the instructions, without the explanation, the picture, it may be powerful, but it's kind of unintelligible. This week, though, in verses 7 through 11, Jesus is going to proceed to give us the instructions on how we can abide in him. Now, I will tell you that as we approach this text, verses 7 through 11 here, many commentators see what's going on in these verses as simply being a reiteration of the things that Jesus has already communicated earlier in chapter 13, 14, and 15. And indeed, Jesus in these verses is drawing together a number of themes that he has already talked about, but it's more than just a simple recap. No, in these verses, Jesus is explaining for us how to abide in Christ. And, and you can see that if you isolate the contributions here in these short five verses that are new. See, if you look carefully, you will immediately notice three statements that are new information that pop off the page for us. In these verses, Jesus is going to tell us very clearly that if, if you are connected to him, there will be three things that will be in you. Verse 7, he says, my word will be, it will abide in you. Verse 7. In verse 10, we find that his love is going to abide in you. And in verse 11, we find that his joy is going to abide in you. And because these three, word, love, and joy, now abide in you, the expectation is that you would now abide in them. And thus, those three qualities that Christ plants within you become the outline for our instructions about how we are now able to abide in him. See, it's as we abide in these three, his word, his love, his joy, that we can be said to be truly abiding in Christ. And as we're going to find today here, these three things from Christ, they are meant to govern every part of us. His word governing our minds, his love governing our wills, and his joy governing our emotions. See, the three parts of what constitutes you as a person your mind, your will, and your emotions map onto and plug directly into these three things, his word, his love, his joy. See, his qualities perfectly mapping onto the wholeness of your being. And friends, that now drives us down to the definition of what it truly means to abide. Let's define it this way. Abiding in Christ means to dwell in connection to Christ with the wholeness of my being. Now, I know that might be a mouthful for some of you, so let me restate it this way. All of him in all of me. And that's what we're going to be looking at as we move our way through this text this morning. So let's not leave this concept of abiding as a vague image Minus the instructions, let's let Jesus dial it in for us. 
Let's look at what it means to abide in his word, to abide in his love, to abide in his joy, and to be truly connected to him at every possible level. Let's just look at those one at a time and uncover them and explain them as we walk our way through the words of our Savior here in chapter 15. The first thing we see here is that to abide in Christ means that we must abide in His Word. Look at what Jesus says. Look, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Now, last week, you will remember that we started talking about what it means to abide. We started to describe this, and we said that it means to live in close relationship to something, to dwell with something or someone. And and we know that that's the meaning of this word abide, because that's exactly how Jesus used it earlier in chapter 14. Remember in chapter 14, verse 17, where Jesus says that the Holy Spirit is going to come and dwell in you? It's the same word here for abide. And then he repeats it again in chapter 14, verse 23, when he says, look, the Father and I, through the Spirit, are going to come and make our home with you. That's the idea of what it means to abide, to dwell with, or to make your home in something or in someone. Now keep that understanding that we've gotten from Jesus throughout chapter 14 in mind as we start talking now about what it means to abide here in chapter 15. And that's going to become very important because right away, Jesus is going to take that word abide here in verse 7 and begin to apply it to his word. And it's abiding in his word that is the first practical way by which you can abide in Christ. You want to dwell with Christ, be found in relationship to him, make your home in him? Well, then his word must dwell within you and you must dwell within his word. To say it another way, to have a connected relationship with Christ, to abide in Him, it looks like having His Word dwelling inside of you, controlling you. That's what he's saying here. Now it's starting to become clear, isn't it? See, this is the first part of what it means practically to abide. It means that His words take up their residence, they abide within you. And verse 3 taught us that it was His Word that made us pure to begin with. But now we get here to verse 7. See, his words have already been planted deep within you. That's how you got saved, by believing his word. His word is already there within you. It's already abiding within you. But now we get down to verse 7, and we find out that his word is meant to stick with us, shaping our mind today. See, if his word abides in you, here's the result. Your thinking is going to be governed by his thinking. And you can see that there in verse 7. You could ask yourself, well, to what degree are my thoughts supposed to be governed by the word of Christ that now dwells within me? Well, keep reading because this is really important now. Jesus says, here's the degree to which his word ought to abide in you. Ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. See, this is really incredible now. Your thoughts 
are to be so aligned with the thoughts of Jesus Christ that when you go to make a prayer request, it's as if Jesus himself is making the request to the Father. His word so resident within your life, your life so aligned with his thoughts, your thinking so aligned with his thinking that, that when you open your mouth, what comes out reflects the mind of Christ rather than the mind of you. And that's the meaning of this statement, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. We know that because this is the second time that Jesus has made this promise to his disciples. The first time he made it back in chapter 14, verse 13, we covered that at length and understand, understood what it, what it means. But just to review briefly, it means that Christ's thinking has so clearly influenced your thinking that even your prayer requests mirror the mind of Christ. This doesn't mean here that you get whatever you want. That's not what it means. The new Lamborghini or Ferrari, it's staying at the dealership. That's not what he's saying here. What he is saying, friend, is that your mind should be so synced up with the mind of Christ that whatever you ask is obviously going to be according to the will of God. And therefore, it will be done for you. See, how is it possible for his thoughts to become my thoughts to this kind of a degree? Well, that's the whole point of Jesus' instruction here in the text. That transformation can only happen as the Word of God dwells and abides in you. And you dwell and abide in the Word of God. See, the Word of Christ dwelling within you, it means that it occupies a place of authority in your life. It means that just as it has a relationship in you, it's dwelling there in you, so too do you have a relationship to it. You're submitting yourself to it. That's what it looks like for the Word of God to abide in you and you to abide in the Word of God. There's an active two-way street. There's an active relationship there between you and the Word of God. It is in you and you are in it. It speaks to you the truth from God and you respond to that truth knowing that His Word is the authority. That's the way this relationship is supposed to play out. You see, the word of God is to abide in you and you are to abide in it. That means we dwell in active relationship to the truth of the scriptures. Now, this is the point at which many people make a really big mistake. See, they think that merely respecting the Bible is the same thing as having the word of God abiding in them. And friends, that would be a monumental error. See, having the word of Christ, holding it in your hands, is not the same thing as the word of Christ having you. Let me illustrate that for you this way. This week, I spent a day at the Bible Museum in Washington, D.C. It's a building that you could say has the Bible. Tens of thousands of copies of the Bible. Ancient manuscripts all the way through to modern translations. It's perhaps the, the greatest collection of biblical texts anywhere in the world and maybe even in all of human history. I mean, that's a place where they have the Bible. But you know what I was struck by as I walked around that museum, that six-story behemoth collection of the Bible? I was struck by how many people 
were walking around that museum, obviously coming from various different religions and were clearly not followers of Jesus Christ. Oh, they had a respect for the Bible, all right, for its historical contribution and as a historical document. They had a copy of the Word of God, but God's Word did not have them. See, being in the presence of something and holding it in your hands is not the same thing as dwelling in relationship to it, submitting yourself under it. See, abiding in the word of Christ means that, as I've said, we dwell in mutual relationship to the word of God. We see it speaking in our lives as we read its pages and then we respond because we know this is the word of Christ within me and I need to listen to him now. You say, okay, now how does that look? What does that mean I'm to go do specifically? Well, the Apostle Paul gives us the instructions for that in Colossians chapter 3, verse 16. You'll remember that text because we covered it together a couple years ago on Sunday mornings here at this church. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 16, there's an emphasis here, and it's on the last word, where Paul takes the same command and he says, look, because the word of Christ dwells in you, you are now to let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. You remember that? The emphasis is there on that last word, a, a word that expands and furthers our understanding of what we are now to do. So let me give you some points of counsel on what to do in light of that instruction from the Apostle Paul. What does it mean for the word of Christ to dwell in you richly? Well, friend, first, it means you have to spend time reading the word. You can't say that the word of Christ abides in you if you don't read it. See, richly means that there is abundant exposure in your life to it. And that can only happen as you spend time in it. That's the first thing that this means. What else does it mean for the word of Christ to dwell in me richly? Well, we could say that it means spending time meditating on the word. Look, you can't say that the word of Christ dwells in you if you read it, snap it shut, and forget about it. See, for the word of Christ to dwell in you richly means that you give it your abundant consideration. It is something that is precious to you and to be valued by you. That's what it looks like for the word of Christ to dwell in you richly. There's other texts in Scripture that would further our understanding of this. Third, here's what this means for us. It means that we actively seek to apply it. See, it's not just enough to, to read it. You must ask yourself the question, what does this word require from me? How is the meaning of this text connected to my life? What does God expect from me? See, for the word of God to dwell in you richly means that there must be abundant application. Finally, to abide in the word of Christ richly, to dwell with it richly, means that you must purpose, once it has spoken and you understand it, you must purpose to obey it, to see it for the authority in your life that it really is. See, for the word of Christ to dwell in you richly, means that there is abundant alignment of your thinking with Christ's thinking. Rich dwelling of the word of Christ within you requires abundant exposure, consideration, application, and alignment. This is what it means for the word of Christ to dwell in you richly. 
It means that the thoughts of Christ fundamentally replace the thoughts of Rich Gregory. It, it means that Christ's thoughts now, they must become my thoughts. So much so that when I open my mouth and pray to God, it's the word of Christ, the will of Christ, the things in keeping with who he is that are coming out of my mouth. And, that's, and the same thing is true for you, friend. See, that's what it looks like for you to abide in his word. For his thoughts to become your thoughts. For his mind to govern your mind. And now that we understand this, let's go back and read verse 8 again. Because now we can understand what Jesus means when he says, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. How do you bear fruit and prove to be his disciple? By abiding in Christ. What does that mean first and foremost? His thoughts, they must become your thoughts. And the only way that that can happen is as you expose yourself to the word of Christ and allow it to dwell in you richly. See, I ask you this question very simply this morning. Is the house of your mind ordered according to the authority of God's word? Do his thoughts govern your thoughts? But back to our instruction manual. See, to abide in him with the wholeness of our being our minds must abide in his word. But see, your mind, as we've said earlier, it's not the totality of your being. That's where we begin, certainly, but it's not where we end. No, abiding in Christ goes deeper than just your brainstem. It goes deeper than just the knowledge of the truth. Because in addition to your mind, you've also got a will. You've got a heart and desires in that heart that now, that now drive what you actually do. So let's talk about what it looks like to abide in Christ at even this level. Because that's the second thing that Jesus gives to us here in verses 9 through 10. We must also abide not just in his word, but also in his love. Here's what he says. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I've kept my father com Father's commandments and abide in His love. See, there's another equals sign here in the text that we need to make sure we understand. To abide in Christ means, secondly, His love abides in you. Just as the Father loved Him, so has He loved you. And now you abide, that means you live in relationship to and in light of that love. So to abide in the love of Christ, it means that you now dwell in relationship to the reality of his love resident within you. And if his purpose, if his purpose was to abide in the Father's love, then guess what? That now becomes your fundamental purpose as well. His will was to abide in connection to the love of the Father. So now that's got to be your driving purpose and will as well. As verse 10 teaches us, it's only as your will is submitted to his that you are able to obey his commands. So what does that look like in practice? Well, it means that I must align my desires with those of Christ. Abiding in the love of Christ means that I must purpose with all of my being, with all of my heart, with all of my desire to love Christ above all. And if I love Christ above all, then I will love those whom Christ loves too. 
I will manifest His love towards others. That's what abiding in His love looks like. Now, some of you might rightly be objecting here this morning. Now, hang on just a minute. You want me to love so-and-so with the kind of love that Jesus had for me? Have you seen Him? Fair question. Or, have you talked ever to her? How am I supposed to love that man or woman with the same kind of perfect love that, that Jesus had for me? I mean, he was perfect after all, and I'm not, and neither is the person you're calling me to love. So how is this even possible? How can I be expected to love in this way? Well, and that's a really good question. And the answer to it can be found in the order of the text that is before us. You see, there's a reason that Jesus talked about abiding in his word before he talks about abiding in his love. The only way to shape the things you desire, to shape the things you love, is to focus on what you know in your mind. Because your mind always informs your heart. The two cannot be separated This is why abiding in the word of Christ is so important and where it all begins. You cannot abide in his love if you're first not abiding in his word. Knowledge, you see, and desire, they are always connected. Mind and will, they're always inseparable. You can't cut them apart. Let me show that to you this way. This past week, Americans consumed or at least purchased $4 billion in candy. And I'm fairly confident that half of that ended up in my house. Maybe not, but there's surely enough that it has to be carefully rationed out every day, no more than a piece a day. That's the rule, and my two-and-a-half-year-old son, Will, knows it. And so when I came around the corner and found a one-gallon bucket dumped out on the floor and him peeling out around the corner with a stash of candy in the belly of his pajama shirt, I knew that we had a problem. See, his desire, his love for the candy led him to act like a cornered raccoon in a trash bin. (laughs) Why? What was going on there? Why was his desire, his love so strong? See, it's because he knew a fact. Candy is good. And that knowledge drove desire. I want candy, which then led to very foolish action. Forget, Dad, I'm taking the candy. See, so it is with us here. Our knowledge drives our desire, which then produces action. And that's what you see being patterned here in this text. Look at the equation that Jesus is setting up for us here in verses 9 and 10. Because he knew the Father's love, verse 9, he desired to keep the Father's instructions to love you, verse 10. Desire drove action. So too, you are now a part of that same equation because you know the love of Christ via the word of Christ, verse 9. Now you can desire to obey the commands of Christ, and that is to love as he loved, verse 10. You see, if you've got a love problem, if you've got a problem of desire, if you're saying it's just not there, preacher, well, then you need to go back to the word of Christ and reinform yourself, reacquaint yourself with his love for you because once you see it, Once you know it, once the truth of that abides within your mind and your thoughts look like his thoughts, well then your desires can't help but follow after. See, biblical love, it's a choice of the will that is born from the mind. 
And if your mind is controlled by the truth of Scripture, then your will can be, it must be, conformed to the will of Christ. You can choose to love just as He first loved you. It was His will to love you when you were most unlovely. So too, now knowing that kind of love, you can desire to love someone else even if they're unlovely. It's your knowledge of the truth that drives your ability to abide in His love. And that, my friend, that is the answer to our tough question about how you can abide in the love of Christ and show it even when the person receiving it is unlovely themselves. See, that's very important. It's so important for us to understand because it's right at the very heart of what it means to abide in the love of Christ. So let's just take that down to the street level for a moment. Let me point you to the example of the Apostle Paul. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14, here's how this fleshed out in the context of a church and interpersonal relationships. He's explaining in 2 Corinthians 5 how he thinks about the people who are around him. And in the context of 2 Corinthians 5, you'll remember he's talking about the people of the city of Corinth, the Corinthian church, the Corinthian believers, no less. And if you remember anything from the context of the Corinthian church, you'll remember that these are people who collectively can only rightly be described as a piece of real work. That's the Corinthian church. And, and here's how Paul thinks about them. What was his desire for them? Here's what he said about it. The love of Christ controls me because I have concluded this. Christ died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves. Because Christ died for me, I can't live for myself with my own loves and desires anymore. That's what Paul says. I must now live for him who, for our sake, died and was raised. And so from now on, Paul says, therefore, I purpose to regard no one according to my flesh. Because if I purpose to regard you according to my flesh, I would say, be gone with you, you're unlovely. But I don't do that. No, now I must purpose to regard you according to the power of the Spirit of Christ who lives within me. And when I see you through the lens of how Christ sees you, when I see that He loves you just as He loves me, well, now, now my desires must be patterned after His. See, it's my knowledge of Christ's love that drives my desire to show that same love now to you. See, friend, Jesus and his love, it's the model for us in every way. You can see that there in verse 10. It's when the desires of Christ become your desires that now you find the ability to consistently obey his commands. It's as you abide in his love. It's as you submit your will to his will. The only way for you to know that will is if you first grounded yourself within the word of Christ that is dwelling within you. That's where it all begins. But here's where it begins to bear fruit. See, submitting to that, I, I am able now to submit that will which I love to that which he loves. And that is the key to an obedient life. So I ask you, when it comes to your will, your basic desires and your purposes, those things that you love, are you governed by the will of Christ? Or are you governed by the will of you? Do you love that which he loves? Or more specifically, those whom he loves? Or do you love that which and whom it's convenient for you to love? See, Christ's teaching here is very plain. His desire to show you the love of God 
should now become your desire and you should show that love towards others as well. As we're learning here, there, there's a lot more to this concept of abiding than perhaps we first thought. And that's why we say to abide means to live in relationship to Jesus with the wholeness of my being, to apply his thinking and his word to every area of my life and every part of who I am. My mind must be governed by his word. My will must be governed by his love. But there's one more piece here that we need to consider, and that's your emotions, the way that you feel. And even this, this too, this needs to be governed by Christ as well. And it's what Jesus says here in verse 11. He says, look, these things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Now, in our instruction manual here, as we're working our way through it, there's a final equal sign in the text that we need to make sure we understand. This is the third thing that pops out. To abide in Christ means that now his joy abides in you, filling you up. See, his joy becomes your joy regardless, and this is important, of your circumstances. And the only way that that can be true is if we define true joy according to the joy of Christ. And that's what Jesus says here, that my joy may be in you and fill up your joy. See, if, if you and I, if we seek to define joy as just a generalized feeling of, of happiness, as though it was an emotional anesthetic, well, you're going to be incredibly disappointed because Jesus didn't define joy as being incredibly happy all of the time. That's not his goal for you. No, Jesus defined joy as, as finding contented satisfaction in seeing the plan of God come to pass. That's his definition of joy. I mean, just look at Jesus here. He's headed to the cross here in this text. This is not a happy moment. And yet his joy is, is undiminished. It's full, he says, and overflowing. Well, how can that be? It's only as you understand joy the way he understands joy. And see, Jesus goes on to define his joy for us. He does it in John chapter 17, verse 13, where he's talking to his father and he talks about what his joy is. And he connects his joy to the completion of his work in you. See, Jesus' understanding of joy was that he had a settled contentment in the knowledge that God's work was going to be accomplished in your life. That was the fullness of his satisfaction. It's that full satisfaction in the knowledge that God's work will be done that the, that the author of Hebrews has in mind when he says in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, that Jesus endured the cross and despised the shame. Why? For the joy, the knowledge of God's work done in you that was set before him. See, and so the result is in Jesus that then there was a peace. There was a contentment. There was a fulfillment, a satisfaction. And this is critical now, despite the circumstances of what was coming straight his way. That's what it looks like to have true joy, 
to be satisfied in the knowledge that God's plan has been accomplished? Now that we understand that, go back to verse 11 and look at it again. Jesus says, I've said these things to you about my word and my love so that my joy, my contented satisfaction in the work of God being done might now be in you and so that your joy may be made full. See, that, that satisfaction with God's working, that now becomes the foundation of our joy. And instead of you and me, instead of us running around looking for some fleeting flight of fancy, now, no, we're, we're able to dwell in his word, submit our thoughts to his thoughts. Now, we're able to dwell in relationship to his love and for our desires to be shaped and fashioned according to his desires. And if his word and his love is resident within us, well then, our joy will be manifested just as his joy was regardless of the circumstances because we know that God's plan is always on track. His word is always in force. His love is always present. And therefore, his plan is always going to be done. And so you and I, friends, we've always got the ability to be content and satisfied in the person of Christ no matter what's happening around us. Our joy can be made full. The word that Jesus uses there to describe the fullness of his joy in you is a word that means to be filled up and overflowing. It just comes forth from you because your knowledge of his word, your knowledge of his love convinces you that God's plan is right where it needs to be. And so regardless of how crazy things appear to be around me, I can trust him. I can be confident in Him. I can be comforted in Him. I can be satisfied in Him alone. Let me give you an example of what that looks like in practice. I point you to the Apostle Paul again in Acts chapter 16. In Acts chapter 16, many of you may remember that there sits the Apostle Paul in a Philippian jail with his friend Silas. Their backs bleeding from a gruesome beating with cane poles their feet chained to the wall, their future very much uncertain, death more likely than not. And yet, what do you find these men doing there in that place? Under those circumstances, you find them, as you read Acts 16, singing. And at first glance, the Philippian jailer, I'm sure, thought these men have been driven mad with pain. What are they doing? No. The reason why these men are singing is because they have the joy of the Lord within them. A settled confidence that God's plan is on track and that joy of the Lord, it was their strength. They're even in that most dire of circumstances. They've got a, a settled conviction, a perfect satisfaction in the knowledge that God's plan is perfect, even if it means we die tomorrow morning. And that plan, God's plan, it is coming to pass whether these Romans like it or not. And so they sang. Now, I don't know what the words were to their song, but I do know what the Apostle Paul wrote to the Philippians in Philippians chapter 1 a text where he describes his joy even as he was in their jail. For to me, he says, to live is Christ, to die is gain. Either way it goes, it's good with me. That's what Paul says. It's not fatalism. It's a settled reality knowing that God's plan is perfect. 
He goes on to say, look, if, I'm on, if I am to live on in the flesh, well, that means fruitful labor for me, and that's okay. And yet if I depart and go to be with Christ, it's my gain. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ. That's what I would most like, for that is clearly far better. But to remain in the flesh, that's necessary on your account, and I'm happy, I'm happy if that's God's plan for me as well. See, no matter what is happening around me, I can be content. I can be satisfied because I know the plan of God is going to be accomplished. Which is then what enables him to say later on in the book of Philippians, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. How could he say that? Because he was confident, settled, satisfied in his knowledge of who his Jesus was and in the love of that Jesus for him. And so now his joy was made full to overflowing and he sings in jail. See, that's what it looks like to abide in the joy of Jesus. It means that my feelings, how, how I might naturally respond to any given circumstances, they get submitted to him. Not just my mind and my will, but down to the very level of my emotions. See, as Jesus has already explained here, his greatest satisfaction was to see the work of God done. And so it was on the cross. And, and therefore, my friends, when, when life, when it threatens to just undo you, the challenge from this text is for you to look to Jesus, the person who has fulfilled the plan of God for you. Find your joy in that fact that God's plan, it's not only on track, but, but you, you get the privilege of being a part of it. How great is that? Now I realize you may be sitting here this morning burdened by cares, going through trials, and you may be thinking easier said than done. How do I get from where I'm at to where Jesus wants me to be? Well, that's where you got to go back and start in the mind because the mind drives the desire. The desire drives the feeling. So you can't be filled with the joy of Christ if you don't share the same desires he has, if the plan of God means nothing to you. And you can't have the joy of Christ if your mind is not, not filled with the word of Christ, his thoughts governing your thoughts. See, if you want to be having the joy of Christ overflowing in your life, you've got to go back and start with the word of Christ, his thoughts instead of yours. And that knowledge is what then drives your desires to love and be loved as he has loved, which then produces in you the same joy that was his. And that is what Jesus is pointing back to here in verse 11 when he says, these things, what things? Those things pertaining to my word in you those things pertaining to my love in you. I have written those things so that as you abide in my word and in my love, you may then be able to abide in my joy. There's a logical order and progression to these things is what we discovered. The word of Christ, the love of Christ before the joy of Christ. Thoughts generate desires. Desires generate feelings. So if you would grow in joy, go back to his word, witness his love, and together those things do a powerful work in, in you, enough to, to bring you a settled joy and confidence. 
even in the hardest of life's situations. And friends, that ultimately is what it means to be in Christ. All of Him, His Word, His love, His joy, connected to all of me, my mind, my will, and my emotions. All of me in all of Him. All of Him in all of me. That is what He's calling us to here. You know, as we go to conclude this morning, it's worth noting here that early Christians, they never referred to themselves as Christians because that was a title that was a religious slur invented by atheists as a put-down for followers of Christ's. You're a bunch of little Christ's. You go back and search the New Testament and you'll find the term Christian only being used three times. And every single time it's used, it's used in the context of someone else outside of the faith talking about one of us inside the faith. You see, that's not how Christians in the early church referred to themselves. See, in the early church, believers referred to themselves using the language of this text right here. They referred to themselves as being those who were in Christ. And over 200 times in the New Testament, you will find Christians referring to themselves as being in Christ, one with Christ, united with Christ. See, they clearly understood that apart from Jesus, they had nothing, were nothing, they had no life, and there was no life. And so they willingly traded their life here for his life there. They saw themselves as being connected to Jesus, being in Christ at every level. And the result was that they were known as people who dwelt in Christ's. Yes, indeed, they were little Christ's. They looked just like him. That's what it means to be a Christian. That's what it meant then. So I ask you, what does it mean now? Well, times may have changed a lot, and they have. But the instructions have remained the same. As we said at the beginning, to abide in Christ, it simply means to dwell in relationship to Christ with the wholeness of my being. My mind governed by His Word. My will governed by His love. My feelings governed by His joy all of me connected to all of him. See, you can't say that you abide in Christ with just a little piece of you. No, according to Jesus, to truly abide in him, it demands all of you. And now that we understand the instructions, perhaps we can see and perceive the image, the picture, just a little bit more clearly. Go back with me to what Jesus says in John chapter 15, verse 4, and we'll close with this. Here's the picture. Abide in me. That's all of him. And I in you. That's all of you. For as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you 
can do nothing. Let's close in prayer.